cliffcentral.com. All right, it is time for the burning platform on cliffcentral.com. This is your chance to catch up on all the things that are going on news-wise currently, all the things that people are talking about. And obviously, in the wake of the President's State of the Nation address, last week we had a poll that said, um, asked, asked a very simple question, are you even going to watch the President at the State of the Nation address? Pumi, did you watch it in the end? Uh, no, I did not. <laughs> I had to go to a memorial. That was way more important. It's also why I didn't come to the. I was gonna come to the the the, um, the launch. Oh yeah, the I was gonna launch. come to the book launch, but I ended up going to the memorial, all the way in the East Rand. Okay, well, you weren't alone because if you remember, the poll last week was, "Will you be watching the State of the Nation address?" <laughs> and most people said they would not. Now, the budget speech is happening. Uh, Enoch Godongwana, the Minister of Finance, will be tabling his budget speech. And someone said to me, well, you know, uh, the, you know, people who want to know what's going on will be watching. But actually, all the people who want to know what's going on will get a copy beforehand. Do you know what else? And we'll have it summarized for them, right? Do, do you know what else we haven't seen? No. A cabinet reshuffle? We haven't. And that uh, someone predicted that. Who was it? Canton? Yeah. Yeah, well, he was wrong. <laughs> he was wrong. So um, our poll this morning is because we've been talking coalitions for such a long time now. Which party do you think would be the best um, to run, to, to lead, lead a, coalition. a coalition going forward in cities, in provinces? No, 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 no. In the, in you the, mean national the, government? Yes, in national government. All right. Who would be the best party to lead a coalition? And you've got four choices, people. All right. So Go to YouTube. We're going to put this on YouTube. You can follow it on the YouTube channel if you're watching us there live. And also, while you're on there, like and subscribe, please. It helps us and it helps uh, the algorithm to think that we're very important and they should pay us attention. Um, and you should be paying attention, frankly, because we bring you guests the like of Greg Mills, who is with us this morning. Now, I'll tell you quickly in summary, what Greg does, because it's actually fascinating stuff, Dr. Greg Mills heads up the Johannesburg-based Brent, Brenthurst Foundation, which was established back in 2005 by the Oppenheimer family in order to strengthen African economic performance. He's been the director of studies and then the national director of the South African Institute of International Affairs from 94 to 2005. He's also the author of multiple best-selling books, including Why Africa is Poor, Expensive Poverty, How South Africa Works, and his latest one, which is called Better Choices, Ensuring South Africa's Future. Pumi Spence, which is a fascinating read. It absolutely is. Um, so I would only recommend Better Choices, Ensuring South Africa's Future. But Greg Mills is with us this morning, and, and Pumi spent a bit of time with him last year at a, at a presentation from the Brenthurst Foundation, which you said was so amazingly interesting that you needed to get him on the show. So I'm thrilled that he's with us this morning. Greg Mills, how are you? Good morning. I'm fine, thank you. Thanks for very having me. Very busy man. Yes, very nice to have you. I'm sorry it's taken us so long to find a date that worked for you, but we wanted to do this live, and um, I know how busy you are, so I'm glad that we've got you on today. Yeah, that's great to be here. I was in Nigeria last week. I'm in Nigeria next week, so this is a, a nice break in the middle of the Nigerian sandwich. Very good. Well, Greg, I've got news for you. Um, we here at uh, the Burning Platform are now three for three. We've had <laughs> three different people come on. So if you run, you have a very good chance of becoming a mayor because guess who just recently became a mayor who was also on our show? Who? What, what do they call him? Um, Souls the first. He has become, he, oh, two really? days ago, he was elected as mayor in uh, the Karoo. I didn't, but we had a bit of an argument with him, as I recall. We did. But all I'm saying to you, Greg, is if you're ready, hmm. the opportunity, when you come on this show, <laughs> we had Dr. Mpo Palazzi, she became mayor. We had Dada Morero, he became mayor, and we had... Uh, now Souls. And he is mayor, so you can you can do it too. Uh, I don't well, think you have any, you, you have no designs on political office yourself, do you, Greg? No, the question is, how long did they last? You, you said they became mayor. Uh, well, that's a good question. Yeah, we, we can give you that initial jump, but we don't necessarily sustain it on the show. You have to keep jump, coming. Jump onto the jump onto the burning platform. Yeah. 
Now tell us uh, just quickly and, and tangentially before we get into the Brent Host Foundation and the reports that you've, you've put out, just tell us quickly about why you're in Nigeria. What are you looking at there? Uh, so last week we ran uh, five different roundtables in five different countries with mm-hmm. sort of back-to-back roundtables with security specialists and then presidential meetings uh, under the auspices of our chairman, who's president, former president of Basinja of Nigeria. So right. we started in Accra, went through Abidjan, Dakar, Niamey in Nigeria, and then ended up, sorry, in Niger, then ended up in Nigeria. And then this week I go back to be part of the Commonwealth Election Observer Mission because the election's on the 25th of February, and that proves to be a very tight and somewhat divisive affair as ever in Nigerian politics with three big contenders of 18 presidential con- uh, uh, but sort of uh, nominees or, or, or candidates. Uh, and, you know, like all things in Nigeria, it's, there's a huge amount of theater and drama and an enormous <laughs> amount of money spent on it. So, you know, you're looking at elections where upwards of $3 billion have been spent in the past on election campaigns. So it's, it's, it's quite summing and, and, and probably quite divisive for the country, at least, at least briefly. Uh, Pumi has so many questions for you for this morning. I'm going to hand over to her so she can start the ball rolling. It's not so many questions, but maybe, Greg, what you want to, Talk us through is the scenarios. You've called it the good, the bad, and the ugly. Do you want to tell us a little bit about your research and those scenarios? Yeah, thank you, Pumi. I mean, so this came about last year as a result of several conversations with, among others, Rolf Mayer, who, of course, is Mm. a historic figure in South African politics. And like many South Africans, all of us are concerned about the direction. And we don't see politics as being something that's preordained where you're simply a spectator in the process. We see, you know, political processes uh, and scenarios as something that point out to people that you're participants in a process, that you actually can shape your destiny. And scenarios are helpful in this regard because they essentially inform choices. And so what we did were, were two things. One is we developed a set of scenarios around some basic rules. And the basic rules were, you know, uh, Coalitions are, are, for example, are 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 increasing likelihood in our politics. That there's no growth going to happen without investment. Um, to get that, you need policy certainty and a accountable government. That that requires, of course, the rule of law, so security. You need a skilled public service, and you need foreign policy alignment to be able to open yourselves up to to investment and trade. And then from that stemmed a number of big questions, which we endeavored to answer. So, so what is, you know, what is, how will the politics play out? What are the likely scenarios? Um, how will we attract investment? And of course, this largely depends on politics. How will jobs materialize? Can the state be able to shore up to security, the, the security situation? Can we acquire the skills? that are necessary to drive our economy that, that we can use to enskill our civil service? How can we undertake reforms? You know, can we get our finances in order? And then finally, can we get the, acquire the power to be able to grow the steady stream of power that continues to blight our lives? And to inform this, <clears throat> we didn't just sort of, you know, sit around the table as opinionated South Africans, as we all are, but we then commissioned a set of, uh, a, a, a survey we did one in 2021 and we did one again last year. So we had some empirical basis on which to make these uh, judgments. And these survey results were very interesting. They were very interesting. We added on questions about Ukraine, for instance, uh, that, you know, three quarters of South Africans believe that, uh, uh, well, did, supported Ukraine. They didn't support the Russians, uh, which I think puts the South African government fairly squarely against its own people in this regard. Um, mm-hmm. But more importantly, we looked at at people's attitudes as to why they thought that things had gone wrong and what they thought the solutions could be. So 80% of South Africans believed that uh, coalition governments were a likely future uh, um, outcome, that they welcomed them. Uh, and 80% of South Africans also believed that the ANC was responsible for much that had gone wrong in the last 30 years. And only less than 9% of South Africans believe that they will blame apartheid for, for the country's ills. 
And from this an analytical backdrop, and there were many more questions asked, we then came up with, with four different scenarios, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And they're really about, and then there's a sort of fourth one, which is the fistful of sense, which is a sort of combination of these. And these really portray a South Africa which is either inclusive or one that remains extractive and elite-based. And it's those choices that I pointed out that, that then inform these, uh, these scenarios. Uh, and so, our, our, current, our current work is really just in, in writing them up into a short digestible format for the public, which we're doing at the moment. So talking about short digestible formats, um, for those people who haven't had the benefit of seeing the report, and we can get into some of the detail in a minute, um, just sketch for us the good, the bad, and the ugly in, in the broadest terms possible, and we can maybe dive into some of the detail around that in, in, in you know, some, some more of the time that, that ensues. But just in, in a very general sense, let's start with the ugly because, you know, we like to be, um, aware of how, just how, how bad, bad things could, just be. how bad it could get. Cause I hear people talking often about, well, we have to reach rock bottom before we can start fixing this country. But what does rock bottom look like, Greg? <laughs> and also, <laughs> well, we, we, we're not addicts. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. The, uh, you know, I, I've spent much of my career working in, in difficult environments. I spent a lot of time in Afghanistan, for instance, and, and other places. Um, sure. and there's one sad axiom in, in, in my line of work. And that is that the, the period of recovery is at least as long as the period of decline. So you don't really want to reach rock bottom because it's just going to make the journey back up that much more difficult and that much longer. So, right, so and so almost just, impossible. So just quickly, sorry, yeah, on, sorry, on that note, when do you think our decline really began? Because a lot of people are saying that most of the Mbeki era was a period of sustained growth. You know, there was a budget surplus, there was there was a building of housing, there was provision of infrastructure. There was a lot that was going right under that period. Are you one of those people who buys into the what ten wasted years uh, that we've we've heard bandied about so much, or do you think that the decline set in before or after that? Well, I think some of the decisions made in the Mbeki government have led to this, the outcomes that we have today. For example, on power, and um, mm. <clears throat> certainly set us up for not making some of the tougher decisions that we still have to make mm. uh, and have proven increasingly unable to do, particularly around labor uh, and around mm. uh, education. So those difficult decisions were not done then and are now have been compounded later on. So it's not all sort of squeaky clean and shiny. Uh, but I would so describe South Africa as being, you know, a, a game of two halves. We had a pretty good first 15 years uh, and then a terrible second half uh, and it's been two halves of 15 years roughly mm. um, and, and you know since 2008 since Mbeki left we we have really struggled and it's been a continual downward slide which uh, Ramaphosa has been unable to arrest you know we have all sorts of promises regular fireside chats uh, promises of summits and as you mentioned earlier reshuffles but none of it adds up to to very much because the very tough decisions are not being made. The very tough decisions about, about carving up the power utility, for example, into, into smaller entities, uh, and getting rid of the kind of mafia state aspects to power provision. These are not being made because they fundamentally threaten, uh, political support, uh, within the ANC and the whole system that the ANC have constructed around it. So I think whatever the decisions were in the first half, they have led to a very bad second half. And we're mm. kind of missing, to extend my, my football or rugby analogy, we're kind of missing a, a bomb squad to bring off the bench to be able to sort it out. We have promises that this is going to happen, but, but the bench is empty. Uh, and maybe the bench will come from somewhere else. But we, we, we've really run out of ideas. And that's why I think South Africans have, have turned to coalition governments. And that's why... The ANC's support has dwindled, at least according to our poll, well below 50%. And that kind of leads me into the scenario. So the ugly one is, mm. is that you have an ANC victory, um, but it, 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 it is a scenario of really dwindling options. Uh, there's more government, but it's no more effective. You announce reforms, um, but they're not implemented. The tide of lawlessness continues uh, uh, and it continues to rise. Uh, you only see low-level officials who are prosecuted for corruption, 
the kind of regional exodus continues. It's really where we are today uh, in yeah. many respects. So it, it's about an elite which is cosseted. It's about a political elite which continues to, to live off rents. But it's not about uh, an inclusive South Africa that we hope for. And, and the bad really is a worse version of that. It's actually where ANC support is thrust below 50%. And it makes an alliance with the RET faction and the EFF. And then you have a rule by populists with very crude redistributive policies, uh, potential nationalization of key businesses. And essentially what you'll see is a, is a, is a, is a, the quiet whooshing noise of capital leaving turning into a screaming jet turbine, uh, as the rule of law collapses and, you know, divisions within the country sharpen as you see inequality rise. And, you know, mm. I think most South Africans who think about these things can actually see that scenario. And we kind of look at it and go, my goodness, that, that's not where we want to go. We want to get to the other side, which is the good, uh, which is, which is one where you have, I think, a, a multi-party coalition. And, and maybe if the ANC gets thrust below 50%, that you see a coalition emerge around the center that instead of running this this political economy, which is very much extractive, that depends on 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 uh, um, sort of tithes paid by by politically connected individuals to maintain the party and its power, that you you have a different system emerging around this sort of centrist uh, coalition, and and say maybe the ANC is at the centre of this coalition, yeah. uh, and it aligns itself. The ANC factions align themselves with others. Uh, and in this scenario, you will see reforms implemented, um, that you see private investments into logistics and into energy in particular. And we can't really see the country turning a corner without that. Uh, that you, you see the maintenance of sound fiscal controls and, and financial controls, which we have been able to do until now. And that's been the, the really the saving grace of South Africa. And you see a more merit-based, skills-based civil service emerge a BE system that actually delivers to the poor, not just to to the to the enriched at the top. Uh, a more a foreign policy that's more aligned to trade and investment and less aligned to hosting naval exercises with uh, with pariahs. Russia. Uh, and then you know you get into educational transformation. And I think if we all sit back and look at the last thirty years, we would say the great failure has actually been the great and chronic failure has actually been education, where we spend a a fifth of our budget on education and get results which don't quite match that level of investment. And then I think finally the last scenario briefly is is a fistful of sense where you get a na- narrow ANC victory and a, a continuation of this rent-seeking. So you have a sort of Brazilian-type scenario, pockets of excellence which are retained and protected and isolated and an increasing kind of sea of, of poverty and of inequality and, you know, it, it's, again, not dissimilar to what we see at the moment, perhaps but a, a bit starker in relief. Um, but where you get this, you know, increasing excellence in places like Cape Town, for instance, where you see municipalities thrive, but elsewhere you see most of them fail, as you mm. do currently with uh, only 41 of 257, I think is the last statistic, uh, getting clean audits. You see this elite oligarchy continue, but with rising corruption. And essentially, it's a scenario where the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. And what scenarios do, Gareth and Pumi, is they essentially say, you know, this is not preordained, as I mentioned earlier. This doesn't have to happen in this way. You're a participant in this. You have a voice in this. You can shape your own destiny. And that's what we're trying to empower South Africans to do. You know, so I think one of the things that that comes to mind and just bringing it back to what's happening today um, with Sona, right? Just listening to the various party officials get up there in what is essentially supposed to be a debate around what the president said, promised, reported on. And instead, what we see is we see a whole lot of buffoonery, right? Coming back 
from them. We see them, none of them talking policy. None, I, I think the, the one person that I saw that, that kind of stuck to his principles, stuck to what he, he and his party are about is Peter Kronewald, right? He is. Freiheitsfront plus. Freiheitsfront plus. <laughs> he is unwavering about, mm. about his constituency and what his constituency want to hear. But on the other side, almost everybody else, this is the opportunity to put forward what they, they stand for, what their mm. policies are, how their solutions would be. This is the moment. This is their moment to shine, right? And none of them took that opportunity. Instead, we're listening to people and, and conspiracy theories about assassinations. We're listening to the mm. bedroom antics of other political. I mean, it was, it was just a mess. So. Even looking at a coalition and what it could be, I don't know if these guys instill that kind of confidence for us. Well, I mean, one of the challenges we have in South Africa is the coalitions are very narrow. And as a result, they, you know, they, they kind of piece together these patchwork uh, components of, of parties that would, nece- would not necessarily have much in common except for the fact that they want to be in government uh, and that they're perhaps against the the ruling party. So, so they they're very fractious. They're personality based um, and easily divided. Uh, and I yeah. think that's what you've seen. You know, with, with such tiny majorities—one seat here, two seats there—everybody wants to be king. Everybody wants yeah. to be uh, the leader uh, and have the prestige. But some of them don't have the support bases, so they they're inclined to go off in a multitude of directions. Maybe a scenario where you have a greater majority and you can afford to lose one or two smaller parties out of that coalition that's part of the maturing of south african politics but but make no mistake pumi it's gonna, never going to be pretty uh, it's never going to be easy but you know the alternative is not so pretty and not so easy either no. so you know the the answer to to improving our politics which is the answer ultimately to improving our economics is to to create more competition, is to create more options. And I'm afraid that coalitions are the most likely way that that's going to be achieved. But one of the things that the, the scenarios you talk about, um, the widening gap between rich, rich and poor, you know, and I'm, I'm just looking at some of the numbers that came out last year. Executives are earning record amounts um, and one of the last numbers that I saw was uh, the Woolworths um, executives, right? So the Woolworths CEO earning geez, in dollars as well, hundreds of millions. And all the rest of the frontline staff at Woolworths, I think all together, including their bonuses, it's, it was something like 50 million uh, that they all shared. So that widening gap between rich and poor. One of the things that you don't talk about is that it also creates ripe conditions for essentially anarchy, a revolution, you know, June, July 2021 20, comes to mm-hmm. mind. Is this something that you, you kind of looked at, talked about in your scenarios too? Yeah, we do. We do look at that. Uh, and I mean, the conditions of dearth and excess, I think is a, the way we would describe it, that give rise to these frustrations where you have these sort of pockets of extreme wealth and the Bentley Brigade or the Aston Martin Brigade living side by side with people knocking on your window at the traffic lights which don't work is is the you know is 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 that scenario. Um mm-hmm. and the frustrations that that creates uh in the process. Uh um and and you know the, in that rising tide of helplessness people in that true South African fashion, make a plan. And it's, it's, it's not going to be a, it's, always, it's not going to always be a legal plan. Uh, and, and I think you're going to see increasing illegality as you see in, in, in alignment with that sort of declining powers in the, in the state, particularly in the police force. So one of the consequences of a, it's not just a consequence of, of a failing economy. It's a consequence and, and a failing system of inclusion and of job creation. But it's mm. also a consequence of, of a failing system of law and order. Uh, and you've seen dr- recently quite a dramatic spike in, in violent, uh, in violence and political murders and in, in murders of homicides more generally. Uh, and I think this is, reflects these conditions.
Now, just a quick question on that, because I was talking to somebody about the, the, the pitfalls of democracy and, you know, how it's not the most perfect system. But he said to me, well, actually, a democracy is a perfectly good system, provided that that law and order component you've just spoken about, Greg, is intact and provided people can see it working. Now, I don't know. Our justice system has has covered itself in glory a couple of times. There have been a few times where it stood up to the executive. There have been a few individuals who've made tremendously brave decisions. And I think South Africans have become a little more dependent on the that branch of government, the judiciary, than we might need to be. But their core competency is effectively making sure that people who are bad go to jail and that people who are good are protected from the people who are bad, that there is a system that treats all South Africans equally. Um, one of the big problems in this country is that legal representation has become outrageously expensive. So it's the province of the rich. Mm. And people are seeing very little justice applied to those who are quite obviously guilty just by a lifestyle audit or by virtue of the way they conduct themselves publicly. It's not as if they're hiding the ball. Do you think that that's demoralized people too? I don't know. That's a great question. Uh, um, and certainly something that we would stick in another, another survey, which we intend to do later this year. Uh, I, um, I do think it, you know, uh, instinctively that it has a, uh, a consequence. Um, we, you know, we were in, as I said, West Africa last week. Uh, and what we heard time and time again, because there's a big third term debate, uh, around many countries, not least in Senegal, which is a relative mm. regional success. Um, and a lot of people were saying, you know, the, the lack of, 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 uh, sort of, political responsibility, accountability goes into issues like third terms, but it, it, it is also around people going to jail. And the big difference was always cited back to us was, was Israel, for example, where prime ministers end up in jail. I think two have been to jail recently. South Korea, where presidents go to jail. Um, Peru, where I think of the last six presidents, I think five are either on charges or in jail uh, on corruption charges. So uh, and then South Korea, where where where, yeah. where fam famously the president is also on jail. So in jail. So you you have to have, you know, this this the system which makes people fundamentally accountable. And I think what we've had in South Africa is not only have we had a lack of political accountability at the top in that regard, uh, and and some treatment of Parliament as the theatre that Pumi has described. So one of the da dangers in in, in, in what's happened in our parliament is it just becomes a spectacle and the, the business of parliament is sort of relegated to the, to almost like a sideshow. Um, mm. that's well, you, another, I think you can, I think you another, can see that if you look at the, at the number of laws that have actually been, been promulgated yeah. in, in the last couple of parliaments, it's been outrageously, I mean, it's just, we're paying for these people to go essentially and either sleep or perform like actors rather than actually pass laws. Yeah, so you, you need, you know, systems of accountability. And, and the way that happens, it's not for politicians to make themselves accountable. It's for the electorate to make politicians accountable. So the only mm. time that happens is every five years where we get yeah. an opportunity to, to pull the lever, uh, in one direction or another. Uh, and, uh, that's, that's ultimately the sanction that we have on politicians in a democracy. So we shouldn't complain if they get away with it, because we are essentially letting them get away with it. But I think in South Africa, there, there is also, it, it doesn't have to be that every five years uh, where we get to pull the lever. I think one of the things that has also happened in South Africa is we're, we're all guilty of being complicit in that we are all rather wait the five years rather than stand up and be part of the individuals who, who make up that body politic, you know, or become those principled and skilled public servants. We, we'd much rather just kind of complain behind our high walls if we have high walls. Um, but which then makes me want to ask this question. You know, you, you talk about scenarios being information to allow us as South Africans to make certain decisions. So I ask myself, what should I be doing right now, looking at these scenarios? 
should I be, you know, sticking it out or should I be saving all of my money to buy a bondoiki in New York? <laughs> mm-hmm. You'd have to save for a very long time to buy your pondoiki in New York, but um, a cupboard maybe. Um, I think one of the challenges, you, you're dead right, Pumi. I mean, I think one of the challenges is is that we are in South Africa, not only masters of our own destiny, because we are, but we're also um, prisoners of our past. We have, we, have, we have successfully kind of made identity politics because of our history, uh, and because of the nature of our politics since 1994, we've made that the defining feature of our political choices. That's yeah. changing, and I think will change over time. Um, maybe the next 15 years will be about more issue-based politics, because I think what we have learnt, if nothing else, is that identity politics has kind of run its course in terms of pulling South Africa in the right direction. Uh, and I I think if we continue to make decisions based around identity, principally around race, uh, then we're in for a, a, a very torrid time because essentially we're letting government off the hook because we say, well, hang on a second, it's, it's the government that represents us because of what they look like rather than what they do. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree with that more. In fact, well, it's, it's the cause of, of quite a few of, of the arguments I have with people who pretend to be politically astute but are actually just race hustlers but also i think around the issue of issues in terms of what how we make our decisions one of the things that that i i was also particularly interested in when i looked at your scenarios is you didn't just look you were naval gave it right it wasn't just looking at south africa it was also looking at geopolitics so looking at africa and looking at the world are South Africans interested? You know, I think about parties that are growing, like Action SA, whom the only kind of utterances you hear from them about anything other than South Africans is what South Africans should do to foreigners. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, obviously, when you're under stress at home, you tend to look at, at reasons for your misery uh, or for your hmm. ill fortune. Uh, and, you know, you turn to people who are different to you. And this is, I think, an outcome, by the way, of, of identity politics. Uh, you know, I'm poor because there's Zimbabweans here. I'm poor because there's Mozambicans or Malawians here yeah. uh, or Somalis. And then you, you end up with, with xenophobia. Uh, and the fact that our politicians are not quick in on this and, and to discourage it is, is I think, uh, uh, well, it, 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 it runs against the spirit of South Africa's own transition and our own history among other things and and it's and it's very much against the kind of ubuntu premise that this government and many south africans would hold so but, so that that on the one hand but I, I i i i on your question as to are south africans following the world outside i i think probably not but be, that's also in part because our relationships with the world outside have also become part of this theater we don't think of of foreign relations in terms of opportunity, we think of them in terms of threat. We don't think of outsiders coming in in terms of skills and uh, and the capital that they might bring. We think of what they're taking away, the jobs or the profits that they might earn. Uh, and that is about political direction too. It's about leadership that informs that public debate. So we tend to see the world in zero-sum terms. We don't see it as a growing pie. We see it as a static pie in which we have a certain slice, whether that be at home or abroad. And I, and I think that's a feature of political leadership because we, we, we're not open to trade. We're not open to the rest of the world. We see the world in academic terms, in very mercantilist terms. Um, yeah. so, so, you know, we have to, we have to bear our, 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 our shoulder, our share of the responsibility as to why South Africans think like that because we see a world of threat and the world of theatre, not a world of opportunity and trade. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, let's turn let's turn our attention to the the outside world for a moment, because you did mention mention the Russia Ukraine situation, and um, you referred very sort of disparagingly, and I think fairly, to the South Africa and Russia situation. Obviously, Sergei Lavrov, the 
the minister, the Russian foreign minister, visited us the other day, was very warmly received. Uh, Janet Yellen was probably as warmly received. We can't keep playing this game where we're friends with everybody because you have to make decisions in international relations. You have to have allies and you have to have enemies. And unfortunately, even if our politicians think glad handing and smiling and waving is an appropriate response, international diplomats and the people who operate at the highest levels internationally won't tolerate that for long enough. They'll start thinking of you as a dishonest player if you don't choose a side. And it seems like South Africa is tiptoeing around trying to be best friends with Russia, which we are by you know, virtue of the, the fact that we've had years and years of very good relations with Russia. Don't know how well it's benefited us, but that's another discussion. And then the, the sort of snubbing of our Western allies, uh, Europe, the USA, to the, to the obvious, uh, to, to, to the, 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 the benefit of Russia and China and, and those sorts of people, uh, those sorts of countries. Now, what, what does that mean, Greg, long term? There, there doesn't seem to be a strategy. For international relations, yeah, strategy is not a term I would bandy about uh, with this government, to be honest. And whether it be international relations or anything else, for that matter, um, you know, strategy is when you have a set of objectives and then you put resources and a timeline to it, and then you you get a plan uh, and, mm-hmm. a, and and a direction. And we don't we don't do that. We we announce objectives. We we'll tend to have a big event around them, and then we don't really have a a, a strategy and a plan to achieve that. So, so, so two things really. I mean, I think that, that South Africa's international relations and particularly its relations with Russia are as perplexing as they are predictable. You know, it's predictable because we've always seen international affairs as a place that we could be radical. Even if we were conservative in our economic policies at home, we could have a, a radical tinge to our government by by having, you know, good relations with Cuba and, you know, trying to cock a snook at any opportunity with the United States. But it's clear mm-hmm. that in the case of Ukraine, this has uh, taken on a different dimension because we're not really non-aligned at all. Um, by cozying up to the unlovable Lavrov, um, we have essentially uh, sort of, you know, pinned our, our colors to the mast of, these authoritarian states around the world. Now, this is contrary to our values. This is contrary to the values that founded uh, the modern South Africa, and it's contrary to the values, the real inner stuffings that make states successful. You know, Mm. when people talk about success, they often tend to ascribe success to things like, you know, smart infrastructure and what they call in the trade performance legitimacy. So you're doing well, all the indicators are great, the infrastructure works, so therefore you're successful. But actually success is much more than about the things on the surface, as Russia teaches us. It's actually about the things beneath the surface. It's about values, trust, accountability, the inner stuffing, the soft power that makes countries successful. And and we have essentially sold this. Um, you know, I think it was Malema who said we... We sold our country to the Guptas for a plate of curry, uh, uh, very disparagingly and very sort of racist terms on the part of Malema. But I think in the case of, of, of Russia, we have sold our country for not even a bottle of vodka. I mean, we, we've I essentially, think, you know, so, we've sold it for, we've sold it in order to be able to appear radical, in order to be able to appear, um, uh, an ally of those who are against something else. And we have, yeah. we've essentially undermined, last point, we've essentially undermined fundamental precepts of international law around sovereignty, around the right of states to determine their own fortunes, uh, and so on, and, and opened ourselves up to a world of pain in Africa in the process. Because if other African countries had to follow this path, we would find it very hard to criticize them as a consequence of this. You know, unfortunately, I think that the, the, the South African government is, is a little bit of a prisoner of non-thinking. Because at, in other words, there was they're a stupid. Time. If you're a prisoner of non-thinking, <laughs> I mean, there's a simpler term Mara, for that, right? Gareth. <laughs> but you, you know, I think there was a time where South Africa had the moral ground to be able to be in the middle. 
to be able to to pull together differing sides. I think about the work that they did in Ireland. I think about the work that yeah. was done in yeah, we used to have moral capital. And and you you know I think even in this instance with Russia and America, I think with a little bit of of savvy politicking, with a little bit of strategy and thinking, there was a time when what could have been done is for South Africa to play a role that is a conciliatory role for all of the, because the last thing that we want, and everybody, China's beating the drums of war. Mm. Russia has already made it very clear where they are in terms of war. What everybody, you know, looking at the economics worldwide, the inflation worldwide, what the last thing the entire world needs is another world war. And that's where we're edging. Yeah, you but know, we don't have any moral or or, but, or intellectual capital and, to spend anymore or goodwill. Absolutely. It was fine when we had Nelson Mandela and we were the Rainbow Nation and we had a great story to tell and all of those things. But what have we got? But we're what a, the guys we're have a, squandered. We're a pisher now. I mean, people people laugh at us because our, our ministers of foreign affairs in one breath are told that uh, they, they can't say anything positive about the Ukraine and then in the next breath are welcoming – you know, the, the Russian foreign minister and God alone knows what they even I believe. I think there's a, there's a bigger concern here. I mean, I, 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 firstly, Pumi, I, I think Gareth is right on, on our good offices to negotiate anything. Um, uh, you know, you, I, I've been in Ukraine six times over the last year since the war broke out. And for the Ukrainians to negotiate chunks of their territory away uh, in the cause of peace isn't going to happen because Zelensky will never survive that um, they might have a ceasefire around current lines but they're never mm. going to have a peace agreement around current lines so i mean it's a bit like us giving away you know uh, uh, parts of the free state to lesotho if they happen to invade us we're not going to do that so why should we expect the ukrainians to do that um yeah. so 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 you know our our view of reconciliation of negotiation when it comes to this is is i think a million miles away from the reality on the ground the second the second point is I, I, I think that there are real concerns that this is not just about South Africa losing its kind of moral compass uh, in terms of understanding of international relations and our set of values. But do the Russians actually have something on us? Do the Russians, are, are there, no. are, have we simply sold our country for the business interests of a few uh, nuclear power, politicians? perhaps? Whether it nuclear be power nuclear perhaps? power or whether it be gas, much more likely, um, and gas provisions into South Africa as part of an ESCOM solution, or whether it be, you know, the Lady R arms deals, or whether it be Russian oligarchs uh, funding the ANC directly, or, 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 you know, oil deals, or money laundering, all sorts of possibilities arise. And, and until we know the answer, I'm afraid they... Uh, and until the government actually tells us what happened with the Lady R, for instance, we're never going to. Uh, we have to think <laughs> otherwise. We have to think the worst. Rick, um, so, so I, I don't. I don't believe that it's entirely us losing our way. I think we probably have found our way, and the way just doesn't look very nice. So speaking of of, of losing ways, because I do want us to. A, talk about the poll. There have been quite a number of mm. interesting things happening there with the poll. But also then looking at all of these various things, and I'm going to put you on the spot, Greg, to say for you, in order for us to get to best case scenario with these scenarios, what are the things that need to happen now so that the best case scenario can come to pass? Sure. Mm. Well, uh, we need to see a cabinet reshuffle. I know you discussed this. Uh, hopefully <laughs> it's not going to happen, guys. <laughs> hopefully after the election, uh, after the budget speech, sorry, um, which uh, which uh, is more in line with delivery than internal ANC politicking uh, and placements. Um, and then you need to see some real action taking place on Eskom. And, you know, real action on Eskom, I think, has to be increasing involvement of the private sector. And, and the unbundling of the, of the utility. But as a first step, it has to be actually not just announcing PPPs, but, you know, actually getting these deals to happen, to, to start feeding power into the grid, to allow municipalities to do their own thing, to concession our ports, 
to, to at least concession part of the airports, Cape Town and Durban yeah. and Quebec and notably. Um, these are these are real things that can actually happen. They can change the image of government. But we do talk about them an awful lot. Uh, and until now, um, the Minister of Coal, uh, Mr. Mantashe, has re- really blocked all efforts to, to green our economy, to open up the power sector, because the power sector is a kind of source of, of much of the patronage that exists within the country at the moment. So, so you know, if they, what we're going to see, if that's to happen, we're going to have to see a fundamental restructuring within the power corridors of the ANC, uh, and that's going to be very interesting to watch. It's not difficult to do. I don't believe it's as difficult to do as it probably is politically tricky for the president to carry out because he's going to have to use his political capital. And what we have learned over the past six or so years is that this is a president very cautious and very reluctant to to use his mandate. Um, and, and, I, and I, I know we live in hope, but uh, um, I wouldn't nah. hold my breath. But okay, so I I, I want to ask you two things. I want to ask you about the bomb squad, but I I do want to make a point around kind of the unbundling and privatizing of services in particular. I was telling Gareth earlier that I was out in the rurals um over the weekend and had no connectivity in that part of the country because it doesn't make economic sense for a Vodacom to have a tower there all of those people are left out of the economy because they don't see how this 3,000 people are going to pay for their service. We can't, as a country with so much um, of a, a gap between what people can afford and what people, people who can afford and people who can't afford, hope that the benevolence of capital will provide services for everyone. So, I mean, I, I think we need to have a, a different Would you rather rely on government? Right. I mean, there are only no, two I options. No, I think we need here. to I, – I, that's the thing, right? I don't think we only have two options. I think we need brighter minds thinking about what various uh, components we can put together because we're not going to be able to pull out people from – uh, poverty, we're not going to be able to create an inclusive economy if we're going to hope for the benevolence of people who are making money. We were just talking about how much money the executives make, you know, and how much money the people who don't. I'm, but I, I do I'm want a... to talk about your bomb squad. I would like to know what that bomb squad cabinet would look like if ever we saw a reshuffle, which I don't believe we're going to see. I'm amazed you, you survived a weekend without social media. Um, probably have to go into therapy after that. Certainly, my children would need to. Um, but uh, the, you know, I, I, I think I'm not a, a sort of a person who's a fundamentalist private sector proponent. I mean, of course, there's a role for the state, uh, but you also have to recognise where the state has failed, uh, and that its promises are increasingly hollow. So, what we learnt out of out of the COVID vaccination drama is that until you inspan the private sector, you basically, you know, just talking nonsense uh, yeah. uh, and you don't have the capabilities to be able to to run the system, a system of that scale across the country without private sector involvement. As soon as the private sector became uh, front and center of, of the vaccination rollout, then the whole thing happened almost instantaneously. I mean, South Africa was a model case. But until that point, it was, it was, you know, lagging, uh, um, uh, getting, you know, compared to even, uh, its African, uh, contemporaries. I, in fact, got vaccinated before everybody else in Somaliland, a country which is not recognized. Wow. Uh, because they had the vaccines available well before South Africa, before we had actually made the decision to go private. But yes, there's a role for the state. There's a role for a more efficient state. There's a role for a state that's accountable. And that doesn't see lots of money squandered. I know that sounds like a tall order. Um, but yes, there is undoubtedly a role for them. What would a bomb squad look like? A bomb squad would be people who are appointed more on merit and less on their political, uh, favorability rate. Do we, do, Greg, uh, they, they, a serious, they, serious question on that. Do we even have people of merit left in the ANC? Because everybody keeps telling me that they're, they're there. 
But the brain's trust of the ANC always was the South African Communist Party, and that's a complete disaster and a joke if I've ever seen one. Who are the smart people that are left? I mean, people harken back to the days of, you know, Trevor Manuel and Tito Mboweni and those sorts of people, but they're gone. They're Listen, we cannot talk about Trevor Manuel. Trevor Manuel and his policies are what has led us to the most unequal society in the world. But this, this is obsession with equality. What, how do you think incentives work, Pumi? You think people are going to go around no, doing but you social cannot, good? You cannot live in a country where we have a one-to-one ratio, where 30 million yes, people can. in our country can, live on less than 20 rand a day. I'm not saying it's this great, is why but it you is are a, living. That is why it is a recipe sure, for a revolution. But it is this dem- is why we are in this demo- position where is, we are so scared. Me, it is demonstrably true that you can because you are. So that is a fact whether you like it or not. Whether it's fair or not is a whole different discussion. But incentives in this respect are the things we must discuss. Do you think people are just going to suddenly up and help each other and put things in place? There needs to be a good incentive. And I think that partly that comes from getting the right people into power. And Greg's saying merit. I'm asking who who are these people (laughs) who have the merit to lead us? And second of all, getting the the private sector involved, which we seem to be able to do better than almost any other country when we do it. And I'm not I saying mean, that they're guilty or not, blameless. I know it's not, I know it's never going to happen because um, uh, it, it's just highly unlikely in the current political circumstances. But if 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 Ramaphosa was really the 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 political genius that he's sometimes held out to be, that what he would do was he'd reach across the political aisle and bring in other other people from other parties who have those capacities, or even civil society. The, and civil society. This is a great moment to do that because South Africa is, by his own admission, in a state of disaster. And we don't really see a way out of this. So the answer is, in, I think, in politics. And I think the answer is in politics outside of the ANC. Um, and that's, you know, is it, is it too difficult to do that? If it, what is at stake is South Africa? Uh, you know, is it too difficult to sacrifice the facade the illusion of ANC or alliance unity to to the greater good, which is well, which I think everyone can see through it already. I think that that's, that's that's the question. So, Pumi, your bomb squad, I think, would would involve people from outside government. It involves some other people from within the ANC. But if we simply reshuffle, uh, I know to use that old analogy, it's deck chairs on the Titanic time. Uh, and we're, we're, so, we're, we're, search, we're searching out icebergs. Cyril Ramaphosa has tried very hard. I think he, he has, um, demonstrated to all of us that he, he is wanting to be inclusive and bring people out from outside politics. That's why we have what are we at 28 different, uh, commissions now between and an extra, the chief and a new ribbon ministry cutter well. and our new ministry. So, he has, he, you know, so he has said to us that this is what he's doing. And all he's really done is he's consolidated power into the presidency. He's created all of these superstructures that are outside of cabinet. And therefore, we, the people, don't really have any way of holding any of them accountable. They are not elected officials. We don't know. We don't even know what they're doing. We don't even know what they're doing as he has all of these summits and he raises all of this money. There is absolutely in, nobody that knows what Cyril Ramaphosa is up to. And, well, it and he seem, keeps it doing it. It doesn't seem to be working terribly well, whatever he's up to. Uh, and we are, they are accountable. For us. It's not working for us. They're accountable every five years. And, and the, 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 the mini squabble that you and Gareth had there a moment ago reminds one that, you know, that yes, there are 28.3 million South Africans on welfare. There's basically 14 million South Africans who work, of which about 3 million are in, in, in the civil service. It's unsustainable. You can't no. run a country on that basis mm. where you've got a mm. workforce of, of, of the best part of 40 million people. And so many people are essentially outside of it. So, so we have to do something different. We have to, you know, strike off in a different direction. Otherwise, we're going to, we're going to sort of prove all the naysayers, um, the nattering nabobs of negativism, as it was famously put by Richard Nixon. We're going to, we're going to prove all of them true. Uh, um, yeah. And that's not what we are capable of doing. We can do something different in South Africa. And 
to return to where we started. Our, our scenarios point that out. There, is actually, there are actually different alternatives, uh, and South Africa can easily follow those, and, and South African citizens have the power individually to determine that. Thank you very much, Greg. It's been great to have you on the show. And there are lots and lots of questions we didn't get to, but I encourage anybody who um, is interested to read the report, the Brenthurst Foundation report. And um, I hope we'll get to they catch up with you. They can download it from your website, right, Greg? Of course they can, yeah. And there'll be a, a longer version out uh, shortly, and we'd be delighted to, to share that with people too. Fantastic. Awesome. And, and thank you for being on the show this morning. It's good to have you here. Thank you, Greg. Paul Rizal. Thank you. Absolutely. So, uh, Pumi, we don't squabble. We argue properly, (laughs) you know? I mean, like, really. By the way, there are a lot of people sending in messages that Trevor Manuel, we want to unpack why you think his policies led to inequality. As opposed to to the the growth and, and, you know, the the incredible economic strength of South Africa in the early 2000s. Trevor Manuel Hmm. came to be our Minister of Finance and was one of the world's longest serving ministers of finance Mm -hmm. at the same time. And he has no background in finance. He has no background in economics at the same time as what they had in America. When I say Robert Rubin, right, with Clinton, and in the same amount of time that that Clinton and his finance minister who came from an economics background and I think Goldman Sachs at the time and what Trevor Manuel had here. In America, they were able to bring millions of people out of poverty. And here in South Africa, we plunged millions of people into poverty. Hmm. Were they not poor before? In but this is my point, right? Is there were people. So you're saying we took were, rich people and put, made them poor? We, we took rich people and made them poor. Just, just now, even as we talk about, about the dwindling. So even as we talk about the number of people who are currently employed versus the number of people we have in this country, if we look at the number of people who are on welfare in this country versus the number of people. All we've, you done, know is, what I'm saying? All we've done is provide more welfare. But what we have done. Is you there is no way with a three hundred and fifty rand grant you are able to there are less people employed. So we have had a population explosion, but the policies in place have not allowed us to grow our economy. The policies we have in place have not allowed us to see people get off the welfare system. In fact, what we have seen is more people get on the welfare system. That is a problem. That is a problem. The fact that they are on welfare is a great safety net, but the welfare that we have is insufficient. The reason why we keep talking about the fact that we are teetering on the brink of some kind of revolution in this country. The only way you fix that is by creating jobs. And the only way you create jobs is to actually have a thriving economy that's growing, which is what Trevor Manuel and Tabo Mbeki gave us. The only way you create jobs is by having policies in place that allow for business. Policies don't make jobs. Policies don't make jobs and neither do politicians. But what policies do is they create a grounding on which to create viable, sustainable businesses. If we live in a country where we have economic policies that do not allow people to be able to participate amongst others, Mm. amongst others, where we have such onerous Rules labor regulations in order right. to be able to get into business mm. where we get bus- small businesses so bogged down by paperwork rather than doing work. Those are all policy decisions. Yeah. Those are all policy decisions where we have an overtaxation of small business. Mm. All of those things are policy decisions. Absolutely. And the policy on on incorrect. We do have to. Um, just uh, you and I, we want to get into this and we will. <laughs> we week. should, we should. No, we should. And I think it would be worth almost having someone who analyzed the economy over the last 27, 30 years. Dori and I have been trying. Yeah, yeah. If there's anyone, by <laughs> the way, if, if, if anyone in the audience can think of who that person might be, who the, who the best person to speak to here, it, it could be in respect of kind of analyzing South Africa's economic decline. I'd love to know who that person is. You can suggest your your people to us in the comments. Also, like and subscribe and the poll results. So we asked the question, which party would be best to lead a coalition government? And the results are, we. you especially said don't put the ANC in there. 
Yes. Why? Why did you say that? Well, because we are in this mess because of ANC policy. So even, and, and remember what you want to do with the poll is you want to create an opportunity to think laterally. We want to think differently. Mm. We are clear guys that the thinking that has got us here mm. is not going to be the thinking that is going to get us out of here. So the results are, uh, 1% EFF. At least there's 1% for them, right? Uh, 6% is the IFP. 11% Action SA, and kind of unsurprisingly, the DA comes in at 82%. So those are, without comment from Pumi and I this morning, because we don't have time, <laughs> those are the poll results. We will see you <laughs> next Thursday for more. Squabbling. No, but I love that. <laughs> Jesus, if, if you and I sat here and agreed every week, this would be the most boring show in the world. All right, and if you've got suggestions, let us know who. Uh, someone's already suggested Mike Schussler, Davi Root. Um, we'll see if we can get some of those people in. Excellent stuff. Thanks, everybody. See you next week.